Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We've been talking a lot about consolidation among media companies, what the tech giants could potentially do in the wake of the AT&T decision. But also, healthcare has very much been in focus as a likely hotbed of consolidation. And we certainly are going to see uh, more activity there after the Aetna CVS potential tie-up that still has to go through the hoops, but uh, is looking more likely after this AT&T deal. Joining me now, Scott Lee. He is principal of CRG, uh, a which is a company that focuses on private healthcare investments uh, and has about $3 billion under management. Scott, thank you so much for being back with us uh, here in our 1130 studios. We did get that news uh, just a few days ago about KKR buying Envision. Uh, you are intimately familiar with Envision having sold a portfolio company to that company. Do you think that this is a good uh, a good pairing? Well, thanks for having me back, Lisa. And and, and I do. I think they're... they're it, it, the logic is pretty sound from a number of different perspectives. And simply, I think if you look at public market dissatisfaction with a lot of healthcare services companies, because, uh, whether it's because the industry outlook is is challenging or if the regulatory landscape continues to be murky, for some of these companies, it makes sense to go through that uh, as a privately held company uh, and then also to have a well-heeled backer like KKR uh, help them take advantage of consolidation opportunities. You know, I have to wonder whether there might be more regulatory hurdles in healthcare that remain, even though the AT&T court case did come out as a victory for that company, simply because with a company like Envision, there are some issues with uh, doctors that they put into certain centers, not accepting insurance. And there have been a lot of, you know, issues around some of these companies, especially as the focus goes on bringing down healthcare costs. That will always be something that needs to be monitored. I think for companies like Envision, they'll actually point to other companies like CVS uh, and, and that type of consolidation and say, hey, they're the ones that make our lives more challenging uh, by driving reimbursement down or putting pressure there. Um, so I think there, there'll be a lot of finger pointing in the days and months to come. Okay. So have you uh, actually gotten more phone calls after the AT&T court decision uh, of potential companies to buy, of potential companies looking to merge? Well, we haven't gotten more phone calls, but there's always there are always inquiries anytime a large transaction is announced. Um, and uh, so we certainly have been um, pretty active over the last several months, uh, even predating some of these larger transactions. Um, but it's just a reflection of the fact there's a lot of investment and M&A activity in healthcare. So what are you expecting in terms of consolidation in the second half of this year? I think you'll see more companies um, uh, announce uh, announce large acquisitions, perhaps not um, industry transformational mergers that have been that have been talked about. But you will see people bulk up because that's the best way to respond to regulatory uncertainty. Uh, what kinds of types do you think are most likely? Because, I mean, we certainly have seen uh, pharmaceutical companies either choose to specialize in just specific drugs or, you know, spin off particular arms. Uh, we've also seen consolidation like the CVS and Aetna that try to create a new paradigm in the healthcare industry of uh, shifting the drugstore and sort of the consumer facing arm with uh, the healthcare services. Are there any other paradigm shifts that are coming? Uh, 
I think what you'll see is a continuation of, for instance, the the pharmacies where they're thinking about different ways to drive customers into their into their storefronts. And so the more they can control different access points in healthcare, whether it's through combining with clinics, combining with uh, acute care facilities, combining with ambulatory centers, I think you'll see a lot of that coming together. So that trend will continue. And uh, any names that you can point to that are likely tie-ups? I think uh, not at this time, but I think... Um, you know, it, you just aren't saying. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I can either... Confirm, confirm nor deny. deny. Very political of you. Very well done. Um, I'm just wondering, as far as your firm's activity, have you been ramping up your investments recently? We have, and in, in, particularly in healthcare services. We recently closed a, a transaction with a, a rural urgent care company called Fast Pace Urgent Care. Um, it's owned by Revelstow Capital Partners, a great private equity firm out of Denver. And and for, for that investment, we're excited on so many levels, but part of it is to make sure that people who don't have um, various options to access healthcare have a cost-effective and convenient one. And that's that's what Fastpace focused on. What's the risk here? I mean, from an investment standpoint, I'm thinking of uh, Tenet, for example, or you know some of these big uh, for-profit hospital chains that got laden with debt and now are struggling. Yeah, are we going to see a repeat of that? If they're not careful with their balance sheets, absolutely. That that cycle always plays out over the course of years and decades. But I think th- there are two things. You just mentioned the balance sheet. Managing the balance sheet appropriately is is should be a top priority. But also managing the the physical footprint. I think for some of these services companies, they they do tend to overexpand or overbuild. And then when when volume sorts uh, when volume tends to stagnate, well now they have too large a footprint and right. and the fixed cost burden is too high. I don't know. I just I'm thinking about the last mergers and acquisition cycle, and it sounded great at the time, and um, it left a lot of companies in a troubled position. But certainly, it does seem like we're seeing uh, new ways to think about the healthcare industry with some of the mergers and acquisitions. Scott Lee, we love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. He is principal of CRG. It invests in healthcare companies. Uh, it is a private company that oversees about three billion dollars of assets. Well, it seems like goodbye to synchronized global growth and hello to uncertainty. Our next guest is going to try to parse through the diverging uh, tea leaves that we're getting from central banks on both sides of the Atlantic. Are we heading toward a less stimulative environment? Will the ECB keep us going uh, for a bit longer? Bob Eisenbeis is joining me now. I'm very pleased to say he's vice chair of and chief monetary economist of Cumberland Advisors, which is based in Sarasota. Minnesota, Florida. He cut his teeth at the FOMC. He was uh, the advisor to the bank's president on monetary policy for FOMC deliberations. And he also was director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. So a lot of insight into this central bank. Bob, thank you so much for being with me. You know, yesterday we heard a rather hawkish message from the Federal Reserve. Today, a dovish one from Mario Draghi. Do you think that the markets are accurately interpreting both messages? Well, I interpreted what Chairman Powell was saying was essentially trying to moderate a little bit what might have been interpreted as a more hawky statement coming from uh, the FOMC based on 
the press release, and I think he was pretty successful at that. But having said that, it's clear that the ECB has been on a slightly different path, probably about a year or so behind where the Fed is, and so maybe two years behind where the Fed has been with its quantitative easing program. So uh, it, it, I think we're looking at a change, that's for sure, and I think we're looking at a world that's going to be a little bit less accommodative when it comes to uh, policy. Bob, uh, I think that one of the biggest takeaways from yesterday's Fed announcement was that the central bank is planning to hike rates uh, or is leaning toward hiking rates four times this year. And the response in markets have been very clear. You're seeing a continued flattening of the yield curve, basically ratcheting back longer term growth expectations. Do you think that the Fed is poised to make a policy error if it hikes four times this year? Well, that was another issue that uh, came up when, uh, in the press conference, and I think uh, Chairman Powell is going to be pretty cautious about uh, rushing ahead. And we have to also consider the fact that there are now five vacancies on the FOMC, four at the board, and uh, that was uh, Bill Dudley's last uh, meeting at the uh, this position as vice chairman and president of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. So the people who are coming on board, and will come on board whenever they do, uh, will be uncertain as to what their policy positions will be. So it'll be a new ball game all the way around with a new cast of characters. And I see Chairman Powell as being pretty cautious. He, he talked about the risks of overshooting and wanting to be cautious. So in other words, you don't think that they're going to make a policy mistake. You think that they're going to be pretty wary of, uh, of causing think, the curve to invert. I, I think, uh, well, you know, the, the, the issue of the curve is, is, is really pretty interesting because in, in my view, a lot of what's been happening has to do with quantitative easing that's persisted in the rest of the world. And when you have the Federal Reserve starting to raise interest rates and uh, you and, and it's the shrinkage of its balance sheet. It turns out that what's going to happen is the Fed, the Treasury is going to be the dominant one who determines what the shape of the yield curve is. And the Treasury, because of the deficit finance, is going to have to issue more securities into the market. That's going to put downward pressure on prices. However, because of the attractiveness of U.S. markets, funds are going to continue to flow into the U.S., which is going to bid up prices and put a f and contribute to potentially a flattening of the yield curve. So which which of those two forces are going to dominate? And I think what we're seeing right now is that the funds coming in are contributing significantly to that flattening of the yield curve. So right now, given the fact that the ECB has taken a little bit more of a dovish stance and that the Federal Reserve is cautiously removing its accommodation. Do you think that uh, there are particular assets that look especially overpriced right now? Overpriced? Well, you know, we, we're beginning to be a little bit concerned about housing. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, particularly in certain areas, there's a shortage of supply and there's been some uh, upward movements in, in, in prices there. So that's one area I think we Wait. have to be concerned about. Uh, what, which areas in particular are you talking about? Well, in Florida, for example, down here, there's a very big shortage of supply, and you, and there's a shortage of new properties coming on the market relative to demand. Uh, even though 
construction is booming, uh, there's still a shortage, and it's being exacerbated by uh, labor shortages, labor supply, construction, and of course, you know that to the extent that uh, that translates into the similar situations we saw in some of the hot markets like Texas and out in California. Uh, that's something at least to keep our eye on. Is it something that could end uh, in, in a sort of very disruptive way, or is it just something uh, where people could get it burned and, and lose, you know, 8%, 10% of their investments? No, I think it's just a case of... Uh, Buyer beware. Well, no, I think it's more a case of the, the issues whether the movement in interest rates and the increase in mortgage rates is going to sort of dampen some of that demand uh, and hence moderate some of the price movements that we've seen. What about, uh, what do you think is the most underpriced right now? Well, I don't, I don't really have a good view, to be honest with you, on individual asset classes since uh, at Cumberland, uh, we really don't buy individual assets. We on the equity side, we're pretty much into ETFs. Uh, and so, you know, we're right now we've been watching financials. So financials were doing pretty well just recently. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're looking more at sectors than individual assets. And, of course, uh, municipal securities look pretty good right now. Interesting. So uh, just uh, real quick, I'd love to get your sense about the inflation picture. And certainly that's been a conundrum for the Federal Reserve. Uh, we did get retail sales out today that were better than expected. We are seeing inflation pick up. What's your expectation as far as wages go? Do you think that people are going to finally see a bigger acceleration in the increase in their paychecks? Well, people like to see an increase in the paycheck, but I hesitate to use and try to equate increases in wages with inflation. Uh, I'm one of those who believes that the Phillips curve has not been particularly useful. And what we really try to parse is the extent to which the increases in wages we're seeing are related to productivity and real increases. When real wages go up, that's not inflationary, and that's not really of, of great concern. And where we see wages going up the most are in the areas where there are scarce skills. Yeah. And that's really a real inc increase uh, because these people uh, are productive yeah. and uh, their skills are valued. So uh, you really have to look under the covers here and yeah. not just assume that all wage increases are going to necessarily be a problem. Bob Eisenbeis, thank you so much for being with me. Bob Eisenbeis, Vice Chairman and Chief Monetary Economist at Cumberland Advisors. that time where we take a look at small and mid-cap stocks. Staples, Tim Bloomberg Sachs, editor, columnist, and blogger at MLiveGo on the Bloomberg joining me now. Uh, we have seen a similar path in small mid-cap stocks today as, uh, as their larger cap brethren, right? More or less. I mean, just not much in the way of direction. The Russell 2000 index down a tenth of a percent. The S&P 500 up less than a tenth of a percent. So not a whole lot of movement to talk about. That said, the Russell's biggest gain by far belongs to a stock we discussed last hour, Lisa. Etsy whose name is also its ticker, E-T-S-Y. The online marketplace is up almost 33%. 
Etsy raised this year's revenue projection to reflect the higher transaction fee on sales. The company also unveiled plans for premium services aimed at sellers. And Instance Therapeutics, ticker INSY, has risen 8%. The drug maker said a nasal spray to treat allergic reactions showed promise in an early trial. The spray would be an alternative to the injection EpiPen made by Mylan. Mylan shares, by the way, are lower by 4.5%. The Russell's steepest drop belongs to Tailored Brands, ticker TLRD. This is a company that owns the Men's Warehouse and Joseph A. Bank Clothing Retailers. Shares are down about 23.5%. Fiscal first quarter results showed the company was less profitable based on gross margin. And the upholstery fabric maker Culp, whose ticker is also its name, C-U-L-P, has dropped 15%. Earnings failed to meet analyst estimates for the fourth straight quarter. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Sachs editor, columnist, and blogger at MLiveGo on the Bloomberg. Thank you, as always. Uh, that was really interesting, and Etsy is a really fascinating move today. Uh, right now, let us shift back to that whole Comcast-Disney rivalry. Comcast upping the ante with respect to bidding uh, for 21st Century Fox, basically saying to Disney, your move. Joining me now, uh, Jerry Smith, who uh, covers all things having to do uh, with these companies and entertainment for Bloomberg News, joining me here in the 1130 studios. So uh, what do you think Disney's going to come back with here? Well, they have to come up with a higher bid or certainly a more attractive bid uh, for Fox's board and Fox's shareholders than what Comcast has offered. Um, I mean, one key difference is Comcast has offered an all-cash bid where Disney was offering stock. So there is, you know, analysts are saying, Disney's likely to add some cash to uh, a renewed offer. But, you know, Comcast and Disney both seem to be very, very keen on getting these Fox assets. So a lot of people think we may see a, a bidding war here. So can you give us a sense of exactly what Comcast is after here? They made a $65 billion bid above the one that Disney had made. What are they, what are they hoping for? Why do they want 21st Century so badly? Well, what's interesting is is these a lot of this isn't the entire Fox for for one thing. Fox News, for example, and the Fox Broadcast Channel are not part of this deal. For Comcast and, and for Disney, but especially Comcast, they're very interested in actually the international assets. Uh, there's Fox, um, you know, there's Star India. Um, there's uh, the Sky, which is a pay TV provider in Europe. Um, so for Comcast, they're looking at the U.S. television market. They're seeing people cutting the cord. That business is starting to slow. And and they're looking at these Fox assets. Uh, I think about 70% of the revenue that are of, of these assets that are for sale actually come from outside the United States. And that's really why Comcast finds this so attractive. Are Comcast and Disney going after the same Fox assets? Yes. So it's the exact same sort of reasoning behind what they're going after. Yeah, Disney's been a little more explicit since they've already had a deal or thought they had a deal with Fox in December. They've been very explicit about how they want to build a direct-to-consumer business. Right. They want to really compete head-on with Netflix. Uh, they already have an ESPN streaming service. They're going to launch another one next year that's going to have Disney films. And they're looking at these Fox assets, everything from um, you know the, the 
scripted t uh, cable channel FX um, to a lot of the uh, the film assets, and they're looking at this as a way to supply these streaming services that they want to build. So Disney is very um, they've really laid out their rationale for this. Uh, you know, also another thing here is is Hulu. Whoever wins this is gets a controlling stake in Hulu, which is you know one of the few uh, companies that's actually trying to compete with Netflix. Okay, so can you explain one thing to me? I found the market moving, the market uh, reaction to this bid on Comcast's behalf to be really strange. All three companies that are involved, their share prices went up. This doesn't make sense to me because you think if you know Disney and Comcast get into a bidding war, they're going to have to spend more money or incur more debt or whatever else to buy the Fox assets. Sure, I understand why Fox would be up, but why would Disney and Comcast be up? I was equally perplexed by that. And I don't have a great answer for you because I've been looking at Comcast stock in recent weeks and they've been sort of telegraphing the fact that they're going to make a bigger uh, bid for Fox's assets. And their investors haven't been crazy about that. Uh, their shares have been going down. And then for their shares to, to jump this morning after they put out this bid after the markets closed, uh, it's a little confounding. But I, I mean, the only thing I can possibly say is that Comcast investors must look at this and think, that they're very comfortable with the amount of debt that Comcast is taking on because they are going to be one of the, the largest borrowers in corporate America after this if they do get the deal to go through. With as more well than $150 billion of debt if this deal goes through. Right. They also ha are looking at Sky, which is sort of um, you know, a separate bid, uh, separate to the Fox bid. So uh, you know, perhaps Comcast investors have had a change of heart and they're looking at uh, the reassuring comments that Comcast made last night saying, you know, we're going to delever and this debt is not going to be an issue for us. Well, I, I, I can imagine that that would be comforting words, but the shares are up 2.6%. So uh, it was, people I found are, it very confusing. This is, it's a head scratcher. I've got to say that doesn't totally explain it to me. Uh, Jerry Smith, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, really uh, an interesting story and just fascinating that all three companies are seeing a pop in their share prices, even though we are heading into what will most likely be a bidding war between Comcast and Disney over 21st Century Fox. Wither stimulus, wither inflation, wither the Fed and the ECB. Here to give us a sense of how he's viewing things is Eric Stein, co-director of Global Income at Eaton Vance uh, here in the 1130 studios with us. Came all the way from Boston. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to make sense of what we heard out of the Fed and what we heard out of the ECB. It seems like they're now going in opposite directions. <laughs> Certainly seems like that over the past 24 hours. I think, you know, when you think from a medium term perspective, I'm not sure that has to be the case, but in the short term, it certainly seems that way. Uh, the Fed was certainly more hawkish than than people were expecting. Uh, you know, a lot of people focus on that median dot. If it were up to me, I have said this before, I would just scrap the dot plot and get away they with it. They want to. I, yeah, They're I, trying. I think they, to me, I think, I think they <laughs> totally need to do it because the market is just obsessed with the dot plot. And so moving from a median of three hikes in 18 to four hikes, um, you know, move, move market somewhat. But certainly, you know, Jay Powell seems you know, less concerned about any of the headwinds, whether they be in dollar strength, they're coming from emerging markets or things like that. And so, you know, a lot of times I get the question, is there still a Powell put? I think there is. I just think it's far, it's more, it's farther out of the money. Let's say in the Greenspan, Bernanke or Yellen put. One of the 
biggest controversies right now mm-hmm. is are we seeing the beginnings of a real inflation acceleration in the U.S., or is this sort of a head fake with respect to the stimulus that Trump uh, passed with the tax cuts, uh, plus what we're seeing with oil prices? What's your take on that? So I think when I think about inflation, I think it's really structural versus cyclical. There's a lot of structural forces that suppress inflation. So, you know, demographics or let's call it the Amazon effect, things that are just keeping prices lower, progress, uh, uh, so many things that keep prices lower. But from a cyclical perspective, you see tightness in the labor market, higher commodity prices, as you mentioned. You, You have this very, very significant fiscal stimulus coming through. Monetary policy, despite the seven Fed rate increases we've had over the past three years, still very accommodating. Right. by any historic measure. And so I think we, you know, you have started to see uh, inflation pick up a little bit. You have started to see a little bit of wage pressure. So to me, it's really cyclical versus structural when thinking about uh, inflation pressure. Okay. Well, if it is a cyclical kind of inflation pressure starting to pick up, then I guess that speaks to where the yield curve is, right? Because it's flattening. Longer term growth expectations, longer term inflation expectations continue to come down despite the positive retail data, despite the CPI and PPI readings that we've gotten out this week. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, if if the market was really expecting a lot of inflation, you'd see it in the back end. Um, you know, back end, the yield curve would be selling off, not kind of relatively anchored, uh, which is where it's been for, for some time. And, you know, I think ultimately it's really a question of how tolerant is the Fed of slightly higher inflation? And there's a, there's this big debate, you know, how steep is the Phillips curve, right. but how tolerant is the Fed of somewhat higher inflation. I think they actually are a little more tolerant of somewhat higher inflation, despite the more hawkish um, you know, message that came from yesterday, but the, you know, still remains to be seen. Scott Minard of Guggenheim yesterday uh, said that the current shape of the yield curve was consistent with an economic downturn starting in the second half of next year. Do you agree? I, I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, I'd certainly say that you know, the, if the yield curve were steeper, I would think that would be better uh, than, than a flatter or even inverted yield curve. You know, there's a lot of debate of whether or not you know does the does the minute the yield curve goes one basis point inverted, does that signal imminent recession? Does that signal the Fed stop uh, stopping their hiking cycle? I don't think it's that cut and dry, but certainly a flat, you know, I'd rather see a steeper yield curve than a flatter yield curve from a growth signaling perspective. Okay. So given the backdrop right now, where are you seeing the biggest opportunities in fixed income? Um, so, you know, I still think there's opportunities in floating rate bank loans, given that there's- Wait a second. Yeah. Hold on a second. <laughs> this is, I want to I wanna okay. really go here yep. because the, the, the leveraged loan market yep. has expanded at a dramatic pace relative to the high yield bond market. It yep. now is actually- Larger than yeah. the high yield bond market, uh, it has grown by almost what a hundred percent in the past uh, seven or eight years. So, what about all the people who are saying there's lots of froth here? Yeah. So, look at at Eaton Vance. We're actually probably one of the biggest managers of floating rate loans. It's not what I do day to day. We have a, a very big uh, you know, team that's solely focused on that. But from talking to that team, you know, certainly when money comes into the asset class, do standards get loosened somewhat? Yes. Uh, are standards as bad as as certain people are out there saying? I, I, I would argue no. It's also nice that it's a floating rate component uh, of the asset class. And so you continue to see inflows into the asset class. Um, does that mean that ultimately from a, you know, at some point in time, it will be time to kind of revisit, you know, how, how you think about that versus high yield. But, you know, right now I think of that, let's say, as at least being more attractive than, than, uh, than high yield on a relative basis. I think of in the treasury space, you know, tips, um, duration hedge tips as being, you know, attractive. I think yeah. there's certain parts of emerging markets that are attractive, obviously been beat up a lot uh, over the past two months or so. So I still think there's some value um, 
uh, across fixed income, but I really like the flexibility of going long and short, which we can do in some of our strategies. Real, just a real quick 20 seconds. What's the most overpriced asset right now? <sighs> Maybe German Bunds. <laughs> so you're not buying the negative uh, 0.62 percent yeah, I mean, yield, and, and, the, and they've they've rallied today, obviously, with the more dovish uh, than expected ECB. But from a longer term perspective, you know, uh, there's certain value if the if the eurozone would ever break up. There's reasons why bonds are priced where they are, given yeah. ECB policy, given fears in the eurozone. But just from a pure valuation perspective, I would put German bonds right there. Yeah, it's hard to stomach. Um, receiving less than nothing for your income investments. Yeah. Twisting kind of logic and uh, and uh, words on their head. Uh, Eric Stein, co-director of Global Income at Eaton Vance. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.